I'm a little bit bothered, honestly, by a lot of the rhetoric that is strictly, let's welcome the immigrant. Mm. It always seems like we feel like we're doing immigrants this huge favor. Like we're welcoming them because God commanded us. And and I do think that's true. God does command us. But I think we're missing the fact that these are image bearers of God. Mm. They don't just bring need. They bring gifts and talents. They Mm. bring faith. They bring so much uh, of who they are. And it's a there's a mutuality of blessing yeah. and welcoming them that is good for us, you know. And- Welcome to the Protagonistas. Today's conversation is with writer, speaker, and immigrant advocate, Karen Gonzalez. So Karen and I actually met through Twitter, which you've already heard quite a bit from folks on this podcast, but I really connected with Karen because, well, she's a Latina like me, she's an Enneagram 8, also like me. She graduated from Fuller Seminary, which is where I'm finishing up at. She lived in LA, which is where I live. She also spent some time in Florida, which is where I grew up. And listen to this, she's a cat lady with a cat named Scully. I'm a cat lady and also have a cat named Scully. Isn't that crazy? So I was so excited for this conversation because I had been so looking forward to getting to know Karen more. I started recording our chat right when we got on the phone and sort of just let it flow. So to save you from more boring or more personal parts, I did chop it up quite a bit. So it kind of starts abruptly and ends abruptly, but you'll get the gist. Anyway, today's conversation really moved me. Karen is such a beautiful and inspiring soul. Not only is she an immigrant herself, but her whole life is dedicated to advocating for immigrants. She does so in her day-to-day, 9-to-5, and then on her spare time through her writing and her speaking. Karen's actually releasing her first book this year. It's about her personal story, her story of immigration, as well as stories of people she's worked with and about the stories of immigrants in scripture. I got to read a couple chapters of Karen's book, and it's not only moving, but it's really, really educational. And I love this episode because we chat a lot about the Bible, which, you know, I love to do. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy. Hey, how funny. I feel like we we have so many, like, similar orbiting (laughs) type of things. It's so funny. I know, it really is. Miami area, right? Yes, yes. My family, they're all in Miami. It's like one of those things, like, Miami people don't leave Miami. (laughs) Like, rarely. You know, and that's and that's actually one of the big things about just my story in general is that, you know, that Miami Cuban haven, you know, it's like this perfect little, oh, yeah, you know, we're Cuban, we're the we're the majority, everything's good, yeah, and then you leave Miami and you're like, whoa, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, like, this is not the rest of the world. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, one of the reasons my parents moved to Florida is, you know, we had lived in L.A. Uh-huh. after years we were in the u.s and um they did not like it <laughs> in la really well they didn't like a few things about it there's uh-huh. some things they really love but they thought it was too expensive oh my you know, god they yeah were undocumented for a couple of years that we were there oh, okay, um, yeah. and so that's one of the reasons they moved there is an easy place to be lost mm-hmm. and not notice yeah so many immigrants yeah but also after they became documented they realized that oh, we're never going to be able to afford to buy a house here because Mm -hmm. everything out here is so expensive. Yeah, totally. And so they went on vacation to Florida and they loved it. And they saw that because most of the immigrants in Florida 
at that time anyway, were documented uh, Cubans yeah. because they're refugees and Puerto Ricans because they're Americans. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and so there wasn't this anti-immigrant sentiment in Florida that they had found in California. And that's one of the things that really drew them, that people mm-hmm. didn't have a lot of baggage around um, you know, Latinx immigrants totally, in Florida. Totally, yeah. It's such a different world down there. It really, really, mm-hmm. really is. And you, you don't realize it. Yeah, like I said, until you leave and then you're like, oh, wait a minute, you know? And yeah. it's, a, it's unfortunate that so many Cubans that they don't, they don't leave Miami, so they don't know, you know, like how it is in the rest of the U.S., you know, for immigrants. Yeah. And so they You know, live- I didn't know until I went to Fuller. So, you know, I moved to, from Florida to California to go to Fuller. And I didn't realize that when I moved to... California, all of a sudden I saw this like anti-immigrant sentiment, you know, Mm -hmm. became very real to me. And also they were doing this like NPR story. I listened to NPR every morning Mm -hmm. and there was a story called Black versus Brown. And I was like, what? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've never heard of this in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. It's, it's such a different world, but so anyways, I want to I want to hear just about you and your story. So I read the the chapters that you sent me. I'm incredible. I love that it's it's like a history lesson and a Bible lesson and a personal <laughs> memoir. It's beautiful. I love it. So yeah, just talk to me more. So I want to hear just your story coming from from Guatemala and yeah, all of that. Yeah, so you know, my family, I you know, I've heard this sentiment right now because of the immigrant um, caravan that's mm-hmm. arrived down seeking asylum at mm-hmm. the border. But, you know, somebody said they're not seeking the American dream. They're fleeing a Central American nightmare. Mm-hmm. And really, that was my family. They never dreamed of living in the U.S. We'd mm-hmm. visited the U.S. Um, when we lived in Guatemala because we had relatives here. Mm-hmm. And my parents had no plan or intention ever to leave. And what changed all that was the political situation completely changed Mm -hmm. in Guatemala. Um, And, you know, now we know that it was a U.S. backed uh, military dictatorship. Yeah. And it really not only did so many people disappear and were murdered and tortured, but it destabilized the entire economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and to some extent, a lot of what we're seeing now is the fallout from that time. You know, yeah. things don't happen in a vacuum and just disappear. Mm-hmm. They have consequences. And so um, for my family, it was, I don't think my parents, uh, my dad, my mom passed away when I was in high school, mm-hmm. but my dad, I don't, I think he thought from conversations we've had now Mm-hmm. That because my brother and I were small, I mean, my little sister wasn't aware. She was like a year old, yeah. <laughs> but my brother and I were, you know, nine and eight when we moved and he thought we weren't really aware of what was going on in Guatemala. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some of the things I, I wrote in the chapters that you read, I mean, we saw and heard a lot of things that were yeah. really bad. We, you know, we came upon a dead body of a man who'd been tortured mm-hmm. and been dumped you know, in yeah. a sort of empty area of our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So we were aware of what was happening, but because of the adults in our lives weren't aware that we knew mm-hmm. and thought we were um, not noticing, thought we were oblivious to everything. Nobody really talked to us about anything. And now we're adults. My brother and I have talked about just a sense of fear that we yeah. felt 
for our parents because what we heard was other people's parents yeah. things were bad things were happening to them um so there came a point where um we knew my dad had been involved as a he had declared himself a socialist and he had been involved in some you know leftist organizing mm -hmm. and he worked for a humanitarian aid organization that was american okay. um but that was working with the indigenous population okay in Guatemala and so it just became too dangerous for him to stay so he left first and then uh, about a year later we left mm -hmm. uh, with our mom and you know sold our belongings and we immigrated to the U.S. and you know we had lived a pretty nice middle-class life in mm -hmm. Guatemala mm -hmm. we weren't wealthy by any means but like I said we visited the U.S. Mm -hmm. You know, we had a nanny that took care of us. And, yeah. um, and how old were you had, at the time? And I was nine when we okay. moved. Nine. Mm -hmm. so I was like nine and a half. And my brother had just turned eight. And we remembered that we had this nice, comfortable life yeah. uh, in Guatemala. And then we moved to the U.S. to like abject immigrant poverty, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and vulnerability because we were undocumented. And so... Mm -hmm. uh, so we lived in LA because my parents really felt, hey, this is an easy place for us to get lost. And we moved to like South Central LA and we lived there with my grandmother, my uncle in this little apartment. And once we got our green cards um, and my uncle, my dad's brother was a US citizen. Mm -hmm. So he sponsored us okay. to become, you know, permanent residents. And it's interesting because, you know, I worked at World Relief when I began working here. I was in the immigration legal clinic and I actually had to take an immigration law class. Mm. And what I discovered is that um, the line now, if you sponsor your brother mm -hmm. to become, you know, a permanent resident is for a Guatemalan person, it's, it's about 13 year wait for that wow. immigrant visa to become wow. available. Wow. We only wow. waited about two years and four months. Oh, wow. So, I mean, the system has just changed dramatically. Yeah. And if you're from Mexico, India, um, China, and the Philippines, the wait is 23 years. Oh, my goodness. I know. So when people say crazy things like, oh, I want immigrants to just get in line and yeah. do it the legal way. Well, for some people, for most people, actually, there's no line, first of all. But even for those for whom there is... I mean, that's the wait. Yeah. Oh my God. That long. And if you're, if you feel your family's in jeopardy, mm. your children can't eat yeah. or go to school, I mean, you're not going to sit around and wait for 13 years. Yeah. You're going to prioritize the well being of your family over a criminal misdemeanor, which is what it is to cross the border. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that was our story of how we came here. And, I mean, I can't begin to tell people how, what a difference it makes to be documented just because our lives completely changed after that. It's like my parents could stop worrying about being picked up by immigration yeah. and could think about things like Little League and music lessons for their mm. kids and, you know, yeah, all their whole world changed. And, um, and then they moved to Florida, they bought a house, you know, they wanted us to go to good schools and, mm -hmm. and, and you know, receive a good education. I mean, it's just, people just have no idea yeah. how, what a difference it makes. It completely changes your life when you become a documented imprint. Yeah. 
And um, yeah, and I'm really grateful. I mean, my uncle stood in the gap for us. He was married to a U.S. citizen, and he sponsored most people in our family. Mm-hmm. Ironically, though, now he is a Trump supporter who <laughs> posts all kinds oh, of anti-immigrant things on his. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's hard. It's hard for people. You know, they call it immigrant amnesia. Mm-hmm. You know, the way that people just seem to forget yeah. uh, the of their own family or even their ancestors. And I was speaking at a church not that long ago about immigration. And uh, afterward, I did this Q&A and this man raised his hand and he said, you know, I'm all for immigration, but I just want people to integrate into the U.S. You know, my grandma came you know, from Hungary and she came to the U.S. and she learned English and, you know, that's what I want. And I just don't see this happening. (laughs) And I had told them that only Mm -hmm. about 24% of first generation immigrants learn English well, Mm -hmm. but by the second and third generation is 88%, Mm -hmm. 95%. And really the bigger, greater concern is keeping the original language because that's what happens for most immigrants. They lose it eventually. Yeah. But it was so funny because I didn't even get a chance to respond to him before his wife piped up and said, Grandma did not speak English. We couldn't even <laughs> communicate with her. Like, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> he's like, yes, yes, she did. He's like, no, she didn't. We couldn't even, we had to translate to, you know, have any conversation with her. So it seems to be the way of human nature to uh-huh. forget. Yep. And sort of want to push down the latest group that you know has arrived and in need of shelter and so yeah that's unfortunate but it seems to be the way it is no it's true and i think that's good to to always be intentional and conscious about that remembrance i remember i think that's so biblical too you know it's like god's like uh remember where you came from like remember you know and so yeah it's crazy how how it's so easily forgotten yeah so talk to me a little bit about your transition yes your transition to the states as a little girl yeah so you know it was so difficult and i think that because my brother and sister and i learned english fairly quickly mm-hmm. um we i think our parents thought it was a lot easier for us than it was yeah. actually yeah but you know we lived this carefree life in guatemala and we had lots of people you know taking care of us and neighborhood kids that we played with on our street and a culture and a system we understood, we knew how to navigate, you know, and in mm-hmm. so many ways, culture, you know, uh, uh, Sherwood Lingenfelter at Fulter, Fuller used to say, culture is like your castle, you know, mm-hmm. it's where you feel at home mm-hmm. and comfortable. And that's what it was for us in Guatemalan culture. And so moving to the US, all of a sudden we're living in LA, we're living in this little apartment. It's a really dangerous neighborhood. Mm. And we go to school and all the kids are Mexican and black and white. And there's no Guatemalans, you know? Mm. It's like, there's no category for us because in our neighborhood anyway, there weren't very many Central Americans. And now we come home from school and we can't, we're not allowed to play outside. But we Mm. come home and we're alone in the house. Mm. My grandma was a, a living housekeeper in a, you know, fancy neighborhood in Brentwood, um, mm. out, you know, this, these like fancy areas of Los Angeles. Mm. And my uncle worked and went to community college to learn English. And my parents, you know, live that immigrant, no Sabbath life. They're mm. trying to yeah. survive. Mm-hmm. And so 
now they just work all the time. Most of what's available is sort of a second shift, you know, the 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. Mm-hmm. situation. So my mother had been a nurse in Guatemala and had had this sort of lively community at the hospital where she worked. But in the U.S., she didn't have any credentials. So she's working yeah. as a home healthcare worker and she's taking care of this old man who's, um, you know, descending into dementia. Mm-hmm. And her life was really lonely. My dad is, you know, had always had a car as an adult, and now he's taking two buses to work at a hotel. And mm-hmm. uh, he has a college education, but he's picking up garbage with a stick. And mm-hmm. I mean, their lives were really hard and lonely too. Yeah. But I don't think they knew that our lives were really hard too. Like we came home and we were just alone together, mm-hmm. eating cereal for dinner and, mm-hmm. and watching TV and trying to learn about American culture through TV. Mm. And and then there was this weird dual world um, that you might be familiar with where you come home and your home sort of represents your home country. Mm. You speak Spanish at home. Yeah. You know, mm. uh, everything at, at home feels like we're Guatemalan. But yeah. then we would step out the doors and arrive every day at this elementary school and we're suddenly in the U.S. Mm. And these were a whole different system and language and culture that developed. And, and then these cultures are at odds, you know, like we were shocked at how egalitarian schools were. I mean, I didn't know that term when I was little, but, (laughs) but you know, like in Guatemala, a school was very authoritarian and there was a lot of rote memory in the U S you're like encouraged to ask questions of the Mm. teacher, question the teacher. And, um, you know, critical thinking is this really high value and, you know, my dad used to be surprised that we didn't have to memorize things, even mm. though he still made us memorize all our timetables. Mm. And I still know them incredibly well because of that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think, and there was sort of, um, I liked that egalitarian aspect, you know, I'm a little bit of a rebellious mm. personality and iconoclast. And so for me, I love that about American culture. And I sort of started to resent all this top down (laughs) authority. Mm, Yeah. Um, Yeah. In my home. So I think that was a struggle. And I, there were aspects of American culture that I really embraced. And I feel that in that, especially because, you know, after we moved to Florida, even though we were in a state that has a huge immigrant population, Mm -hmm. we lived in a completely white community, Mm -hmm. like literally my brother and sister and my two cousins were the only um, Latinx people that we knew at our school. There was no ESL program at our school. Mm. Um, It was all white kids from the neighborhood and there were black kids that were bused in Mm. from South St. Petersburg and that was it. And so we didn't, other than our family, we didn't have a lot of exposure Mm. to Latinx culture. And I think a lot of people are surprised by that because they know I grew up in Florida, but that's the way that our upbringing was. And so for us, it became, I think, we began to sort of devalue or prefer the American culture, you know, Mm -hmm. because it seemed like if you integrate into it and do really well, Mm -hmm. you know, it kind of guarantees you success. And it, it, it almost seemed to me like an either or. Yeah, yeah, I see that. Mm-hmm. You embrace this, or you can, you know, mm-hmm. stay in your little community and never leave. And so, yeah, there was a lot of ways in which one of the things I talk about in my book is, is um, so my mother died of cancer 
when I was um, 17. And my abuelita, who had been like the mother of my faith, you know, Mm. she taught me everything about the faith and who had been a person I always was close to and relied on. Mm. Um, She, she insisted after my mother died that I should delay going to college until after my little sister graduated college. And my little sister is six years younger than me. And when you're 18, six years is a third of your life. It feels like you're giving up, you know, you're going to prison or something, you know? And, but see, in Guatemala, that would have been the expectation. The priority is la familia, right? That's the Mm -hmm. centrality. And so for her, it seemed like this is what we do because she's very Guatemalan. She Mm. never integrated fully into American culture Mm. or even a little bit, honestly. She never made that transition like I did Mm. as as a kid. And so for her, it seemed natural. And of course I would do this. And to me, I didn't see any of the Americans being asked to do this, any of the kids I went to school with. Mm -hmm. And so I, I refused. I mean, the idea of it was unbearable to me of giving up six years of my life. And, you know, we had a really bad falling out over it. We never Mm. reconciled because she, and now I recognize what we had was a huge cultural clash. You know, she, Guatemalan culture and American culture. And she wanted me to live by values that unfortunately I no longer um, adopted or lived by because half my life or most of it was being lived in American culture, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I think it was, there were so many things that were good and enriching about being a bicultural person, but there are also a lot of losses. And I feel like often we're not allowed to grieve those losses. Mm. We're not allowed to acknowledge them. We're supposed to be grateful Yeah, yeah. for, mm-hmm. for, uh, for the fact that we, college educated or gain some measure of success right mm. within American culture but yeah, yeah. so so uh, I know how you had mentioned uh, I read a part of your book that your parents weren't into like religion or they weren't into Catholicism and so it was your abuelita who kind of introduced you to that so can you talk to me a little bit about that how is that you know like your spiritual you know I guess like aspect on life or, or you know growing up Catholic or you know, kind of doing that on your own thing. Like, what was that like? So, yes, my parents, I mean, my dad was a socialist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So his his faith was really in humankind. Yeah. And what we could accomplish as human beings. He did have a lot of respect for the priests Uh who were, you know, practitioners of liberation theology. Uh And, you know, particularly in El Salvador, that was very strong. And he had a lot of respect for them. But he had no interest in religion. He also respected that priests go to seminaries for a lot of years. His, his mother was very Catholic and went to mass her whole life. He was not interested. And my mom had grown up with a really, my abuelita was wonderful and loving. She was a little bit of a fanatic mm-hmm. <laughs> and very zealous. And she had mm-hmm. been a Pentecostal evangelical Christian and sort of shoved religion down their throat mm. is the way my mom and her siblings felt yeah. so many of them had just not embraced it for that reason they were very much like i'm tired of this you know yeah. my mom she would just say it's, it's okay to believe in god but you don't have to go crazy and yeah. that was her <laughs> philosophy and so i was always interested in faith mm-hmm. even before my abuelita became this central part of my life after we moved to the u.s 
I was interested and I, our school was Catholic and I went to the Catholic parish with a neighborhood friend and we were, you know, we studied to get our, our first communion. We went through the classes and I didn't understand a lot of what was going on, but I felt drawn to God in some way. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then when I moved to the U S and my grandma went to the church and so my mom, my grandma was Afro Latina. She mm-hmm. was from the Caribbean coast of Guatemala. Mm-hmm. So most of my mother's family is Afro Latino and they were, they spoke English. Like my grandma spoke English. Well, she had a, a Caribbean accent oh, okay. because her parents were from Barbados oh. uh, and they had moved to Guatemala when the sugar cane um, industry collapsed mm-hmm. in Barbados. Mm-hmm. So they moved to the Guatemala coast. So they spoke English. They taught their children English. Now my grandma did not teach her children English because okay. she married somebody who was Guatemalan, mm-hmm. but, uh, but she spoke English well. And she went to an African-American church because she experienced so much rejection from uh, sort of mestizo and white Mm -hmm. and uh, indigenous Latinx people that she made the decision to align herself with American blackness. Mm -hmm. And so she went to this African-American church in LA and she took me with her and she really was the person I mean, she was not an educated person. I think she went up to sixth grade in Guatemala. And, but she really had a strong and vibrant faith. It gave her a lot of hope. Um, It made her resilient Mm -hmm. and it gave her a lot of dignity too. You know, she was a living housekeeper, but she would always say all work um, is good. Mm -hmm. All work has dignity. And what's shameful is stealing, not Mm -hmm. working hard for what you have. And she was not ashamed to tell people what she did for a living. Mm -hmm. And she's the one who imparted faith to me in a very partial, in in a very informal way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, she was very excited for me to get, you know, uh, to become part of this Protestant tradition. And, you know, there were things I didn't get because, you know, I don't think she understood that my English you know, was growing, <laughs> but not, yeah. not fully, you know, I didn't have full comprehension of everything that went on in church. Yeah. But, um, but over the years, you know, that relationship with her is really what, uh, really what helped me enter into the faith, mm. um, in a, in a, and gain more understanding, you know, and just, I think seeing what faith did for her in a way that, it was so different the way that she dealt with hardship compared to other people in my family. Mm. And, you know, her faith was simple. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't as if, you know, she read theology books. She still had a King James Bible. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, Reina Valera, that was her too, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> she, um, but there's so much now that I look back on that I see that she was really my spiritual mother mm-hmm. in the faith. And that for a long time, I didn't value that because I knew she didn't have a lot of education and I saw some of her missteps, you know, Mm -hmm. and, but now looking back, I see that she really taught taught me this theology of survival Mm -hmm. and a theology of um, recognizing the dignity of all work, not just office white collar work. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah so, so for cool. me, it was really powerful. When I think of her, I think a lot about Hagar, mm. because Hagar was 
you know, she was this foreign enslaved young woman, you Mm -hmm. know, she was probably a girl and nobody, nobody gives sermons about Hagar. I've heard tons of sermons about Abraham, about Sarah as the mother and father of our faith. I've never heard a sermon about Hagar. And I think that's really sad because I feel that Hagar had these gifts from God. She had God show up to her Mm, (laughs) twice, you know, and God, as he did for Mary, not only did God send a messenger and tell her, this is what you're to name your son. And this is the future I have for him. That's exactly what God did for for Mary. Mm. Um, But God did that twice for her and, you know, found her in the desert, like, I, I picture God as this compassionate mother finding a lost child mm. in danger in the desert mm. and embracing her and, and bringing her into a safe place. And I think of my grandmother that way because I think of Abraham and Sarah as sort of the, you know, master and mistress of the house that everybody respects and honors. Mm-hmm. And nobody thinks about the undocumented maid in the kitchen, mm-hmm. you know, with someone like Hagar, someone like my grandmother. But in fact, God cares for all and God honors all and speaks to all. And, you know, there's this great future and destiny that God had for Hagar, not just for Abraham and Sarah. And I see that in my grandmother's life. You know, I know she would, you know, read her Bible in her little servant quarter room because Mm -hmm. she was a living housekeeper. Um, and I'm sure that the people that she worked for didn't give her a second thought as someone who was a theologian, yeah. <laughs> the spiritual mother of her family, or someone who didn't just bring a need for work, but brought gifts, yeah. brought talents, brought faith, brought hard work. And I'm a little bit bothered, honestly, by a lot of the rhetoric that is strictly, let's welcome the immigrant. Because mm. it always seems like, we feel like we're doing immigrants this huge favor. Yes. Like we're welcoming them because God commanded us. And, and I do think that's true. God does command us. Yeah. But I think we're missing the fact that these are image bearers of God. Mm-hmm. They don't just bring need. Yeah. They yeah. bring gifts and talents. They mm-hmm. bring faith. They bring so much uh, of who they are. And it's a there's a mutuality of blessing yeah. and welcoming them that is good for us. you know. And, and that's what I, you see in the story of Ruth, right? Mm-hmm. They welcome Ruth into their community, but Ruth also blesses them. She blesses Naomi, she blesses Boaz, you know, and she is grafted into this community of God. Um, And I love that story for that reason, because you see that mutuality. And, you know, I I understand the heart behind the welcoming the stranger rhetoric, and I appreciate it, but I think we need to change that narrative. Yeah, just move it further. Yeah, go deeper. Mm-hmm. and go deeper into that so yeah. i'm sorry it's a very long answer no yeah. no it was perfect um and so beautiful yes that i think that's at the heart of really a mujerista theology it's that you know giving um mujeristas agency right like to 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 do their own theology to be you know to like you said it's a mutual it's a mutual thing it's not just like here i'm going to impart this to you and receive from me but it's it's a giving and a receiving and so i think that's huge so talk to me. I loved what you what you talk what you said about the Seraphonician woman. I feel like, uh, whew, I, I know that there was like a big Twitter a big Twitter thing about the Seraphonician woman recently, 
Um, so talk to me about her. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, you know, I love the Syrophoenician woman. I, I just think that's just, it's a beautiful story, but honestly, it's one that I really struggled with. And my (laughs) first semester at Fuller, I took a gospels class Uh and, and, uh, my professor, Dr. Downs, he's still there. Yeah. He's still here. (laughs) He had us, um, write a paper on the gospels and I wrote mine on the Canaanite woman, which is the same story, but in the gospel of Matthew, because it's a story I'd always been so confused by. It Mm -hmm. just seemed like Jesus is so harsh calling this woman a dog essentially. Mm -hmm. And you know, this woman who, yes, she's foreign and pagan and she's approaching a man, which is totally socially inappropriate, but she's so desperate for healing for her daughter. And she just, Mm -hmm falls at Jesus' feet and says, please, you know, provide this healing. And Jesus calls her a dog. Mm-hmm. She insists she won't be dismissed. And and then Jesus grants her this, you know, she provides this little sassy response. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Jesus affirms her and affirms her words mm-hmm. and says, you know, your, your daughter is healed and, and she returns. And I, I always felt that story was so powerful, but I didn't know why. And it made me uncomfortable at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so, so I really wanted to dig deep into that story. And I was very careful not to call her an immigrant because uh-huh. she actually, she's a foreign woman uh-huh. in comparison to Jesus, who's a Jewish man. And he has actually entered her territory mm-hmm. uh, where she lives. Um, and then, you know, they have this encounter. And so, um, so I think what what I really love about it is that this woman, even though, you know, once you learn about the context of the ancient world, she was so marginalized mm-hmm. and really it's so bold to approach a foreign man, mm-hmm. a, a Jewish man, no less. Mm-hmm. And she does it anyway. She's so desperate for healing. And it's interesting as I've read womanist mm-hmm. and African-American theologians, and they talk about that story. They talk about survival. Mm-hmm. You know, they talk about she won't be dismissed. She is willing to break all these social norms because she needs to survive. And so does her child. Mm-hmm. And so she enters into this. And when I was working at the World Relief Immigration Clinic, I met so many women like that, Yeah, you know, who were willing to break criminal misdemeanor laws to enter the country, who were willing to work as undocumented people Mm. uh, to help their families survive both their families back in their home country who they had to send money to but also their children here in the u.s and like nothing would deter them from this mode you know Mm. and that's what i love about Mujerisa theology too it's a theology of survival and yeah so so i really saw that in this woman and and that she spoke up yeah, she didn't just do, but she spoke up um, for herself, and and I see that as so valuable—not just for women, um, but for all marginalized people. That silence doesn't win us anything. It's important mm. to speak up and yeah. say, you know. Mm. Um, and she does that for herself, and 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 by extension, you know, I think all women. Mm. She speaks up for women who would be denied. Uh, because of who they are. Mm. 
So I find that story so powerful. And there's the, the so many women that I encounter that are, you know, people don't know when you're seeking asylum, you have to tell that story over and over again. And in such yeah. detail, I mean, reliving all the painful details of everything that happened to you. And I have so much respect for the immigrants who enter into that process. It's one of the most difficult immigration solutions to get. I think many people might think, oh, you come to the border and you ask for asylum and you're in. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not the way it works. It's, it's a whole process. Most people are denied truthfully because few people have proof mm. um, of their persecution. And their persecution has to fall into certain categories. You, know, you have yeah. to be persecuted because of your political opinion, your race, your ethnicity, you know, religion. There are certain categories you have to fit. And then there has to be proof. Mm. So I, I really am in awe of my immigrant neighbors who enter into that process and have to retell painful stories of, mm. of loss, of assault, of yeah. just terrible things that they've suffered. But they speak mm. in order to you know, receive refuge mm. and, and to some extent justice yeah so um so yeah the story i find it moving and i find it inspiring in, in moments where there's so many ways in which people who are immigration advocates can mm. feel defeated and give up yeah i think this woman's an example of no we don't we don't give up mm. we talk back we yeah. sass back yeah. there's a woman is theologian that, that talks about sass and the seraphonician woman and and i love that this idea of you talk back even to jesus himself you know, mm -hmm. you say for your name's sake, bring justice here. So, yeah, it's one of my favorite stories. Yeah, yeah I love that. And that how you talked about that it was her, like, it was specifically her words that granted her, you know, and, and just the power of using our words, of speaking up, of, you know, and, and like you said, it's not just about action, but it's about, it's about words. And yeah, I think that's such an important point, and I, I think that's beautiful. And something that is, I think, even in that story, often overlooked is just the power of our voice and the power of speaking up and what that can bring. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, if you want to talk to me a little bit more about that, just like the idea of speaking up and, and as Christians and, and how, you know, we can use our voice and for others, but also, you know, in talking about that, giving that agency to people to use their voice. Yeah, and I think a lot of people perhaps feel like what's the point yeah <laughs> of speaking up if nothing happens and i and you know i've met people who feel that way about protests so like what is the point of this like mm -hmm. why do we do this but i was really inspired when i read um between the world and me mm -hmm. and what coates is yeah. talking to you know it's a whole letter to his son the whole yeah. book um and he talks to him about you know we don't resist because we're guaranteed the result we want but because it ensures our own humanity. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think when we, if, if our goal is, oh, we're going to receive everything we want if we speak up, then yes, we're going to be really discouraged mm. by speaking up because that won't happen. That's not the, the world we live in. But I, I do think it's important for our humanity to speak up. And when I speak to immigration, about immigration, you know, to, to white churches, I always encourage them that to, to speak up for immigrants. And I don't mean like, yes, you can call your congressperson and I encourage people to do that. 
But I mean, speak up when you hear people say things about immigrants that you know aren't true. Mm. Or when you hear people disparaging the image of God, the humanity of immigrants, speak up. You don't have to be rude about it, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but definitely engage that and speak up for them because they're people just yeah. like you. They're not, you know, there's a real danger, I think, in allowing rhetoric I, I think it's dangerous their mm. words aren't just words they shape reality yeah and we have to be willing to combat false words and we have to be willing to speak up even if it won't be guaranteed you know the result we want immediately mm. silence won't do that either yeah and we have to we have to be willing to engage that so you know when I look at the Seraphonian woman that's my story and Jess, she encountered a just man. She encountered, you know, fully man and fully God, right? Mm -hmm. And who, who granted her request. And I tell a story in my book about a woman that didn't, you know, mm -hmm. she, but she still spoke up and she still uh, told her story and her truth. And I think that's valuable too, even if she didn't receive the result that we feel the just result, the, the result that I wish she'd gotten. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what other women do you, in your book, I know that you talk about a little bit about Ruth and, mm -hmm. and Esther. I talk about Ruth. I talk about um, Hagar. Mm -hmm. I talk about the Syrophoenician woman. And those are the three women mm -hmm. I really focus on. And then I also talk a little bit about Sarah, but mostly it's the story of Abraham since mm -hmm. he's the focus of that story. Mm -hmm. uh, so I talk about Abraham and Sarah. They were immigrants. They were mm -hmm. called out of their land. Mm. Um, and it's uncomfortable for a lot of people to think of immigrant of, of Abraham, not only as an immigrant, but mm. a criminal immigrant, he yeah. trafficked his wife, you know, he mm. entered without authorization into a land that wasn't his. Mm. Um, but he wasn't seeking to harm anyone. He was mm. seeking survival for his family and he was obeying the God he served. Mm. Mm. And so I talk about him and I talk about Joseph in Egypt as well. Very careful not to call Joseph an immigrant because I mm. believe Joseph was a foreigner until the point that he made the decision to stay in Egypt. Really, he mm. was a victim of human trafficking mm. until the point he's released from prison and chooses to stay in Egypt. And so um, so he's another one that I talk to because I think in Joseph's story, you really see the vulnerability of immigrants, um, which is something you know we see every day people seem to have a radar for vulnerable people and to just prey on them. And I mean, the number of immigrants that come to our office who've been victims of crimes, often multiple crimes, so many women are, are sexually assaulted. They say at the border, 60 to 70% of the women that enter the border unlawfully are, um, are sexually assaulted. I mean, wow. there's just so much vulnerability being particularly an undocumented immigrant, but even a, just a newly arrived immigrant and not understanding the culture um, and the system, you know, the way that things work. I just remember at the clinic talking to an older woman. She's probably in her 70s. She's undocumented. She's from Honduras. And, you know, she talked about being raped. She thought about, she talked about, you know, her daughter, her daughter's husband had beaten her and just the number of things this woman had suffered mm -hmm. because people know that immigrants don't know the system or they're undocumented and are afraid of the police and yeah. have no recourse. And so it was important for me 
to engage the story of Joseph because you see that in his life, just the vulnerability in the way that first he's trafficked, then he ends up, you know, being accused of a crime he didn't commit, then mm-hmm. he's unjustly imprisoned and forgotten by everyone but God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to engage that story. So the book does have a very mujerista reading of scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, it's definitely reading reading the story from from the perspective of people on the margins. And I weave in stories of um, mostly my family mm-hmm. because and me because that was just, you know, every member of my family was um, a, a victim of a crime in LA the first mm-hmm. two years we lived here. Mm-hmm. All of us. I, mm-hmm. Because, you know, this is the vulnerability that we live with. None of these crimes were reported to the police because mm-hmm. my family was afraid. Also, we came from a country where the police was really corrupt. Yeah. So there was a fear of maybe it's the same here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, the book basically goes through the stories of immigrants. There are six chapters on immigrants, beginning with Ruth, Abraham, Hagar. Um, and then there are five chapters that I tell through the Catholic sacraments because my early imagination of faith was shaped by the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. uh, even though I'm not Catholic anymore. Um, so I, I use the five sacraments because the last two sacraments in the Catholic Church are um you know, ordination and marriage, mm-hmm. neither of which <laughs> I have entered into. So mm-hmm. I don't have anything to say about those. So I avoided the service sacraments and mm-hmm. focused on the ones that are common to all, which are uh, baptism, confirmation, anointing the sick, communion, and then reconciliation or repentance, confession is the last one. That's beautiful. Yeah. You know, I had two target audiences in this one. I had uh, Latinas and Latinos, I wanted mm-hmm. them to, because so many stories about immigration are, are written by white people, which, yeah. and I don't, I'm not saying they should not write their stories. There's a, a market for that, certainly, and they're heard by people that might not hear me because mm-hmm. I'm a brown person, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying they shouldn't write their stories, but we should also be writing our own stories. Yeah, <laughs> and, totally. And uh, I really wanted that perspective in there and mm. and not just someone who through you know friendship or whatever situation uh, um, you know got to know immigrants and their situation so mm-hmm. um so it's important to me um, to tell that story and I talk about that in the preface because I used to complain about it that every book I encountered was not written by an immigrant mm, <laughs> and a gosh. friend of mine finally was like very gentle but very firm why don't you write that Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. You know? yeah. But yeah. But yeah, my audience really was Latinos and Latinos, but also the people who are not yet, you know, maybe they're on the fence, right? On, exactly. uh, on this message. And I kind of wanted them to see one, the, the fact that the scripture speaks to this, that God is not silent on this subject. Mm-hmm. But I also wanted them to see that not only is God not silent, but there are real stories and real narratives and real push factors that create the situation where people move and that was my family situation we never you know the first chapter of the book I talk about our really good life in Guatemala and Mm -hmm. there was no plan no hope you know Mm -hmm. to to leave for any reason why would people want to leave their home exactly Uh, you know they're pushed out that's Mm -hmm. the only reason people leave so yeah and I I wanted that part told as well and so I sort of weave in that and I do weave in some immigration 
facts for people to know. Um, but yeah, I, I, I hope that's what it will accomplish. And that's sort of my prayer that the spirit would use the book in that way. So, yeah. So where is it that people can, can like find you or, you know, you're on Twitter and. So I'm on Twitter and Instagram and my handle is at underscore Karen J Gonzalez. I also have a website, karen-gonzalez.com. And those are the easiest places to find me. Um, and the book will be out in May 21st. It's only available for pre-order at this point, but it is done. Yes. <laughs> so and available exciting. on Amazon. Oh, awesome. 